Wow. It was a declaration. It was a great reminder um, of how it can be for people of God. Hey, I'm Scott. If I haven't met you yet, I'm one of the pastors here. And we're going to uh, be in the scriptures in just a moment. And so if you want to get a head start, you will want to open to First Chronicles in the Old Testament, chapter 1. And then we will also be in the book of Psalms, Psalm 78. So if you've got a, a way to mark two different places, First Chronicles 1, Psalm 78. Um, while you're doing that, let me give you a 60-second kind of tutorial on how to get the most out of this hour. If you have your program in front of you, you'll see that we've actually been on a journey together. Uh, God is inviting us today to consider what it means for him to be sovereign, what it means for him to be the almighty God, what it means for him to be a ruler over all things. And so as we have uh, embarked on this journey of experiencing him and understanding him, we began with Revelation song, primarily based out of Revelation 4, that affirms over and over again the worthiness of God, the greatness of God, the glory of God. And when you're looking at a song like that, you have to ask yourself, do I believe this? Does this represent my own heart, my own conviction? Have I come to grips with the theology that's in that song? And can I do that wholeheartedly? And uh, sometimes I'm pausing while Jerry and everybody else is singing because I've got to run that all through the whole week's worth of circumstances and my feelings and my thoughts and so on like that. And then I can come back out. Oh, yes, that's that's where I am and, and affirm that. And then we uh, read Lamentations that reminded us about his mercies that are new every morning. Do I experience that? Do I believe that? Is that reality for me that I get fresh mercy, fresh grace from him every day? And then great is thy faithfulness. Maybe you flash back and go, oh, we're doing an old song. I'm glad we're doing an old song today. Or I wish we weren't doing an old song today. Whatever was going through your head. But the, the essence of the message, is he faithful? Is his faithfulness great, greater than the faithfulness of anyone else on this planet? And then we uh, reflected on Second Chronicles. How, what kind of habitation, what kind of temple, what kind of uh, place could ever contain God? No place. Not even this planet, not even this universe can contain Him. And then our God. What a high, holy, uplifting, majestic song. And if He is for us, who or what can be against us? And on one level, we know that's true. And then on another level, we go, but you know what? That person or that circumstance sure was powerful against me. And you've got to run that through the grid of do I really believe that or not? And if, if things are looking like they're prevailing over me, what does that mean? And we will not be shaken. I want that to be my confession. I want that to be my heart. There are times when I'm shaken, though. And that brings us then to where we begin to reflect on the scriptures that will talk to us about the greatness of God, the glory of God, and the sovereignty of God. So are you with me? You ready to go there? That's a little bit about uh, the journey that we do around here week to week.
We're talking about being the people of God. What's that look like to be in this world, but not of this world, being of God, being God's people, a unique set apart unto him for his purposes and his pleasure kind of people? We uh, will do a little reflecting on Psalm 78. So, you uh, should have that open now. And let me see if I can find it. All right. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from uh, of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Let me stop there. Because what we're going to get into is the psalmist recounting a whole series of historical data, a whole series of historical events that show the hand of God was here, the hand of God is here, the hand of God. I know in this situation it didn't look like the hand of God was there, but the hand of God was there. The hand of God was there. The hand of God was there. And um, you will, in the succeeding verses, verses 9 through 66, no, we're not going to read all that, so relax. But you have, you have just come through reading all of that in these prior weeks. Those of you that are doing the read through the Bible effort across this year, you will have read about every episode that will be described, and you'll be refreshed or you'll be reminded about a few things as you're looking at all those verses. And then as we get to verses 67 through 72, you find out that the culmination and everything the psalmist is trying to recount points to, and then God put David on the throne. Uh, let's pick it up at verse 67. So he rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah. Out of all the tribes, he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took, took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes. And he brought him to shepherd Jacob, that is to say Israel. As his people, uh, Israel, his inheritance, with upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. Now, those of you that are doing the readings with us now, you know that we've been uh, looking at First Samuel. Then we look at some Psalms and now we're looking at Second Samuel. We're looking at some Psalms. This is a chronological reading. And that's why we're flipping back and forth, because some of the Psalms that David wrote were written out of the experiences historically that you're reading about in First and Second Samuel. And so when he engages in this big battle and God shows up and God is there for him, then you go over here to this psalm and you read him worshiping God or extolling God for the way God showed up in this battle that you'd read about over here in First Samuel. Okay, with me? So uh, what we've got here as we are looking at this psalm, and now we're about to go to First Chronicles is a continuation of the various biblical writers highlighting in yellow for us. God is sovereign. 
God is over it all. God is almighty. Through all the ins and outs of all the historical events that you want to consider, God's uh, hand was there weaving this, th- this thread, this tapestry together to create his purposes and his plans. So look with me, if you will, then, uh, at First Chronicles. And uh, this will be part of your reading in the coming week. And if I hadn't warned you ahead of time, you would have begun the first few verses and begun to cry because uh, it's genealogies. And you go, I think we already did genealogies. When we get to the New Testament, we're going to do genealogies all over again. Why? Why are there genealogies? And uh, let's begin to see. In chapter 1, verse 1, Adam. Yeah, we start all the way at the beginning. (laughs) Seth. Enosh. Kenan, Mahaliel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Shem, Ham, Jake. No, I'm not going to keep on and keep on. But you begin to see he's going to begin with Adam. He's going to continue to get us to the day of Noah. And you remember all that. You read around that. And Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then he's going to not only cover about Ham and Japheth, but he'll begin to focus more on Shem. Because from Shem comes Terah. And Terah is the father of Abraham. And then that unfolds a whole series of things that you're aware of. You've read it all about Abraham. And then we're reminded Abraham brought into this world Isaac and Ishmael. And God continued the promise, the covenant that he established with Abraham through Isaac in Isaac's son Jacob. He had Esau and Jacob. Jacob, of course, becomes Israel. Israel has 12 sons. And as we just saw in the psalm, God chose one of those 12, Judah. Then to be not just the tribe, but the generational lineage that will result in, ultimately, David. Perez, a son of Judah, has a son, Boaz, who has a son, Obed, who has a son, Jesse, who has a son, David. The whole point in the whole genealogy that you're going to start off here with is to get to David. Now, leaping to the New Testament, when you begin to read the genealogies in the Gospels, the whole point is to get from David to Jesus. And show how all of that connection has been taking place. That's why the genealogies is to show you how the hand of God is at work in all of these circumstances, good and bad, blessing and hardship, how God's at work in all of that and how God is at work from generation to generation, 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 the generations that honor him and walk with him well, the generations that dishonor him and walk with him poorly. God's purposes, God's plans will not be thwarted, will not be undone. He will accomplish what he sets out to do. And these genealogies and these historical psalms just put in yellow highlight that kind of reality for us. So what I want to do is I want us to take a moment to reflect on something that we skipped over a few weeks ago. Because as we were just looking at this genealogy... And Judah has a son, Perez, and Perez has a son that ultimately leads 
to Boaz, who leads to Obed, who leads to Jesse, who leads to David. Let's back up four generations there to the time of Boaz for just a moment. And of course, that whole story is told in the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth is a story that happens during the time of the judges. Now, if you're kind of newer with us and you're going, what are you talking about? Ruth, judges, you know, Boaz, all these guys. I can only say, please join us in the reading journey. Because this reading journey is laying a foundation for us to be able to make sense of what God's saying way over here because of what we found out way back over there. Okay? So join us in the journey. In the bottom of your uh, order of service, you'll see how you can get in on these chronological readings and uh, just pick it up with this week. You don't even have to go back at this point. Just start going with us from here on. Well, we're not going to take the time to read all of this. You've read Ruth, and you are familiar with the story. But it has uh, to do with a woman by the name of Naomi, who is married to a guy by the name of Elimelech, and they live in Bethlehem. Now, because you know the New Testament and because you were followers of Jesus, Bethlehem is significant to you. Uh, And it's for no small reason that they mention that Elimelech and Naomi are from Bethlehem. And it's a time of great famine. Uh, Now, historically, it's also this time of the judges. What's that mean? That means that people are in these cycles of wandering from God, being chastised and disciplined by God, and and then being rescued by God and being back on the same page with God, and then wandering from God and starting that all over again, right? So it's this time of judges. And no doubt, the famine that has befallen this region around Bethlehem is due because God is chastising. He's disciplining His people for waywardness. And the, and the famine is pretty severe. And uh, Elimelech and Naomi have two sons. And they take their two sons and they go across the Jordan River east to the land of Moab. Trying to find food, trying to find a way to live. Now whether that's a good idea or not uh, is not totally clear. Um, because they were in the land of promise. God was supposed to be providing for them in the land of promise. They were supposed to be living for him and making his name great in the land of promise. And here they check out and they go to Moab. So probably not a good idea, but it's not explicit uh, as to this got them sideways with God. But anyway, they end up in Moab, which is a historic enemy nation to Israel. Uh, And it's a whole other culture. And they worship other gods, little g. And there's all kinds of problems with going to Moab, but but they go to Moab. And uh, Elimelech and Naomi's sons, two sons, three Moabite women, uh, Orpah and Ruth. And crazy side note, because you're probably thinking about it anyway, Orpah sounds like Oprah. And as a matter of fact, Oprah Winfrey was named after Orpah, but her family had such a hard time pronouncing it, they changed it to Oprah. So uh, it's too bad I'm a trivia guy. Those things stick in my head. Uh, So anyway, Orpah and uh, Ruth marry these sons of Naomi. And after a period of time, Naomi's husband dies. And after another period of time, Naomi's sons die. And now you've got three widows 
living together, and they're not faring well. And these uh, young widows, Orpah and, and Ruth, are young enough that they're of marrying age and can start all over. And Naomi is like, I don't have any more sons to give you. There's, there's no one else in my family you can marry. You ought to just leave me. Go find new husbands. I'm going to return to Bethlehem. And they don't want to. And she insists. And they don't want to. And she insists. And this goes back and forth. And finally, Orpah cries, kisses Naomi, and says bye. But Ruth says some of the uh, most remarkable things that are in the Scriptures. And so um, if you want to turn to it, you can. Otherwise, just listen carefully because I didn't give you a head start on this one. But in verse... uh, 15 and so on, talking about Ruth and Naomi. Uh, She said, see your sister-in-law, Naomi says, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if uh, anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. And so Naomi and Ruth return to Bethlehem. Um, So hang with me for just a couple more minutes. Because Ruth is ever so significant to our understanding the sovereignty of God. This is a Moabite woman who apparently has had a conversion because now Naomi's God is Ruth's God. And Ruth's commitment to Naomi's God, to Yahweh, to Jehovah, the the God of the Hebrews, is as such that she uh, has pledged total loyalty. I'm not only going to return with you to Bethlehem, I will never go back to my family. I will never go back to Moab. I will never go back to that life. So this is a once and for all. I've made a change of my entire life toward your God, to our God. So uh, they return to Bethlehem, and they try to, you know, get along as a couple of widows who have no men to provide for them, to make a living for them, and so on. And um, it was the time of harvest in Bethlehem for barley and for wheat. And as Naomi makes her way back, and she gets reacquainted with her family and with her friends and so on like that, and they're like, what happened? Tell us the story and so on. She goes, no longer call me Naomi, which means sweetness. But now call me Mara, which means bitterness, because God has dealt with me bitterly. Ton of theology in Naomi's comments. Because what Naomi is saying is that our sojourn into Moab, the death of my husband, the death of my sons, our poverty, our going with lack and want, is the hand of God. She saw God's hand in everything that was going on in her circumstance. Now, that doesn't mean she liked it. Are you with me? If God's hand is at work in and around our lives, that doesn't mean we always like it. That doesn't even mean that we can respond to it well in a given moment. Uh, I'm not suggesting when she says, hey, don't call me sweetness, call me bitter. 
because God has dealt harsh with me. I'm not even saying that's a good attitude. I'm just saying it's real. It's real. And uh, it's, it's a true God-following kind of realness, God-following kind of authenticity, because she still acknowledges God, worships God, yields to God. She's, not, she's just not particularly happy with present circumstances that God is all over around her life. Now, you know the rest of the story, right? She's going to meet Boaz, and through a series of things, she's going to end up marrying Boaz. Talking about Ruth. And they will give birth to a son, Obed. He will give birth to a son, Jesse. He will give birth to a son, David. Israel's greatest king. Who will give birth to Solomon. Who will give birth, who will give birth, who will give birth, who will give birth until you get to the time of Jesus. The king of kings. Oh my goodness, friends. God was at work in Naomi's life in ways she could not comprehend. It was so beyond comprehension that out of her faithfulness to God and out of her sojourn with God in this world, that she would be able to influence a foreign daughter-in-law who becomes such a sincere God follower that God chooses to take her, a pagan Gentile, bring her into the Hebrew community and make her a grandmother to David and a great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother, whatever, to Jesus. Now, friend, what is going on in your life? What are your circumstances? It's in my hand. God was at work sustaining Naomi's life so that he could accomplish redemption. God is at work in the lives of his people. What's it mean to be people of God? It means to be a people with whom he is at work. To accomplish redemption. High, holy, eternal purposes. We may not like the way that circumstance looks right in the moment. But people of faith say, you know, it's more than this moment. It's more than this season. God will ultimately do something with my life because I am one of his people. That works redemptively. And to his glory. Let me uh, just highlight a few things the Bible says about sovereignty and how that gets played out in our times and events. In the first place, the scriptures affirm that God fixes all time by his authority. No randomness. No oops. How did that happen? No inconsequential stuff. He fixes it all by his own authority. Acts 1 7 says, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. For people of God, nothing is accidental nor 
incidental. That's huge. God's perspective on time is different. We're told in Psalm 90 verse 4, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. 2 Peter 3.8 says it this way, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. Here's the way theologians describe it. In terms of time, God is over and above time, able to look down on time, which is this encapsulated parenthetical thing in eternity. And at the one and same time, he can see creation. He can see fall. He can see the Noahic flood and the restoration that happens after that and the covenant with Abraham and all that he did with Moses and the exodus from Egypt and the conquest of the land and so on. He can see all of that and the birth of Jesus and your birth and your coming to faith and what he does with you. He can see all of that at one time. He's looking at all of that, even though it's all separated by hundreds and thousands of years for us. He sees it all in oneness. He sees things differently than we see things. God sets the time for nations to rise and to fall. He's that involved in this world with the rise and fall of whatever countries and nations and leaders. We're told in Acts 17.26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Do I care about the upcoming presidential election? Absolutely. Am I going to be informed on the issues? Absolutely. Am I going to try by conviction to vote for an individual uh, that I feel some prompting about? Absolutely. But ultimately, friend, whoever wins our presidential election, God's on that. And then in the fourth place, God sets the time. Of evil powers. Think about this. Luke twenty two, fifty two. Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus was seized, arrested, brutalized, and crucified according to the plan and the time of God. God sets the time for redemption. For when His redeeming work would be completed. Think about incarnation for just a moment. 
Galatians 4, 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. He set the time for the incarnation. He set the time for the crucifixion. Romans 5, 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And he sets the time for the second coming. Jesus has ascended back to the Father, and and the Scriptures testify that he will, at one occasion, on one day, return in power and glory. The appearing of our Lord, 1 Timothy 4.14, the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Finally, my personal times are in God's hands. Now, you multiply that over seven billion times. So that's how many people with personal time there are on this globe. And they are in his hands. The book of James tells us in 4.15, what is your life? You're but a mist. You're here for a little and then you vanish. And therefore, you ought to say, With respect to whatever you think you're going to do, whatever you think you're going to put your hand to, if the Lord wills, we will live and we will do this or that. That's the way you've got to think about it, because it is in His hands. Now, let me tease out a few more implications of what this means, and then we're going to wrap it up. Because we're talking about His sovereignty. We're talking about His omnipotence. We're talking about His being the Almighty. Everything falls under His power. Everything falls under His purview. Everything falls under His purposes. Everything is under His rule and His reign. Since God is the Supreme One, who is of supreme worth, then God's glory is first in importance. You have to think about the implications of that. Because there are a lot of things that are important. There's a lot of things that we want to esteem for their importance. But we dare not and we cannot do so over and above God. And God will not. The minute God values something or someone greater than himself or his own glory, he's just made that more important than God. And he cannot do that, and we cannot do that if he is the supreme one. Therefore, God's activity, all of God's activity, is to God's glory. Because that is the supreme importance. And therefore... God's people, if we're going to be his people, if we're going to be in a covenant relationship with him, if we're going to be redeemed by the saving provisions he's made through Jesus Christ, if we're going to be his people, then we are not only enjoying his promises and enjoying his benefits and enjoying his provisions, but we are covenanted, we are committed to live to his glory. We have joined him in glorifying his name. Still with me? Therefore, God's people can rest in all of life's circumstances. 
And I don't mean kick it back in the lazy boy chair, kick up the feet kind of rest. But I'm talking about be at ease, be at peace, be uh, in a sense of surety that God is on the throne, God is in control, God sees every circumstance that's going on in my life, and nothing escapes His attention. It all matters, it all counts, it all is serving in some way to His glory for at some point. In Naomi's current circumstance, there didn't look like there was anything serving God's glory. It was all in the incubator, though. The divine, eternal incubator. Just waiting to give birth at the right time. Are you following me? So that, as a person of God, who's in covenant with God because of faith in Jesus... God promises to provide for me. And I can testify, I've had a lot of His provisions. He has been good. He has been gracious. I can glorify God about His provisions. But friends, there have also been seasons in my life of deprivation. There have also been seasons in my life of lack and want. Not knowing how in the world... I'd be able to continue on. And God is glorified in that time as well. Because even in the time of deprivation, He's still my greatest treasure. He's still the one that I consider the pearl of great price. That which deserves my greatest allegiance. In other words, He's glorified by His providing for me. I can testify He's good. And He's glorified when He doesn't provide for me because my loyalty and allegiance to Him, even in deprivation, reveals I don't esteem Him because of promises and blessings. I don't have Him right at this moment, and I still esteem Him. God's blessed me with a lot of health. He's blessed you with a lot of health. We can honor, praise, and glorify Him with our health. What our bodies enable and allow us to do. He's a good God. How intricately He has created the body and the health. But I also can glorify Him in ill health. When I don't have health. When I'm sick. Because if my heart is still inclined to praise Him and honor Him and glorify Him, then I've said to a watching world, God's more important to me than my health. See, even in my sickness, even in my weakness, I think He's the greatest. And whether He restores my health to me or not, I count this moment a precious moment that I can glorify Him. Now, friend, I don't say that easily. I know some of you have had or you are in serious health challenge. But that's been the testimony of the men and women of faith that have preceded us in all the generations before us. In the good times and the bad times. In the blessed times and the hard times. In the health-filled and the health-deprived times. In the safe and conquering times. In the conquered and defeated times. It's God, it's God, it's God. His glory. 
So, what do you do with that? We've said over and over around here that these matters of faith are not just a, a matter of, okay, I don't know if I can figure it all out. It's all too big for me. I'll just take this giant leap into the darkness and hope. That's not what we're talking about at all. We're talking about God and His mercy, God and His grace, God and His goodness, revealing things. Over and over again, He showed you a little bit here. He showed you a little bit there. He shows you something through Scripture. He shows you something through one of these gatherings. shows you something through one of our small groups. shows you something through uh, another relationship about Himself. Disclosing Himself. Will you consider all that evidence and believe? Bet your life on Him. And will you trust Jesus as the sovereign Lord of life? To trust means even when the circumstances go south, I still have come to know that He's good, that He's righteous, that He's redemptive. And I will trust that this hard season or this hard circumstance is being used ultimately for good purposes. Will you persevere? The Bible calls us to perseverance over and over again because the temptation to quit is so great. But by His grace and by His strength, will you persevere through the difficult times with hope? Hope is not wishful thinking. I wish, I wish, I wish it would all change. Hope is a conviction-based confidence. No matter this circumstance, He's in control. He's good. It's going to work for right, holy purposes. Persevere. Let me pray for you about that. So, Father, you know how challenging thinking about these things can be for us at any given moment in life. Thank you for meeting with us right where we are today, emotionally, intellectually, relationally, spiritually. You just met us right where we are. Thank you by your Spirit for speaking into our heart, into our thoughts about these things. And we pray you'd help it make sense. You'd help it come home to our heart by way of conviction that you'd help us believe you. In Jesus' name.